This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Do you have a point of sale system you can trust or is it <clears throat> a real POS? You need Shopify for retail. From accepting payments to managing inventory, Shopify POS has everything you need to sell in person. Go to shopify.com slash system, all lowercase, to take your retail business to the next level today. That's shopify.com slash system. Hello, everybody. This is Marshall Poe. I'm the editor of the New Books Network. NBN listeners like to read books and buy them. So we thought we'd tell you that right now, our friends at Princeton University Press are having a remarkable site-wide sale. You can get 50% off books, including eBooks and audiobooks, with the code 50, F-I-F-T-Y, at checkout until May 31. You can save some real money on Princeton University Press books. I encourage you to go there and check it out. Welcome to the New Books Network. Hello, everyone, and welcome to New Books in Anthropology, a podcast channel on the New Books Network. My name is Suvi Rautio, and I'm one of the hosts of the channel. And on the podcast today, we are joined by, by two guests, Elise Waterston, who is a presidential scholar and professor of anthropology at John Jay College of Criminal Justice, City University of New York, and Charlotte Corden, illustrator and fine artist who often works in the realms of anthropology. Elise and Charlotte are here to talk about their new book, Light and Dark Times, The Human Search for Meaning, which was published in 2020 by University of Toronto Press. Light and Dark Times is a profound work of anthropology and art for anyone yearning to understand the darkness and hoping to hold on to the light. Rendered in graphic form, the book invites readers to consider questions to explore the political catastrophes and moral disasters of the past and the present, revealing issues that beg to be studied, understood, confronted, and resisted. In a time when many of us struggle with the feeling that we cannot do enough to change the course of the future, this book is a call to action, asking us to envision and create an alternative world from the one in which we live now. This graphic book will be of interest to all curious thinkers and is a particularly inspiring and informative course book with discussion guides and drawing exercises for students to work on. I will be discussing the book in more detail with Elise and Charlotte, who I have the pleasure of joining on the show today. Elise and Charlotte, welcome to the podcast. Hello, and thank you so much for having us. Um, I'd like to begin by asking the two of you about what brought you together to compile a book on the human search for meaning. And how did you choose to do so in graphic form? Um, So again, thank you so much, Suvi, for having us here. I'm Elise, so that your listeners know my voice from Charlotte. And And, hello, um, everybody. Sorry to jump in there, just just so I might introduce myself. Uh, I'm Charlotte, and I'm the illustrator of Life. So, yeah, so um, your question was about how did we two get together? What brought us together and, and to make this uh, graphic novel um, on the human search for meaning uh, and light and dark times? And why and how did we choose to do it in graphic form? Well, the answer to your question starts with um, a personal story, but it also, like everything, has a history and a context. So first I'll share with you a little bit about the personal story. So um, I was president of the American Anthropological Association, which is the largest association of anthropologists in the world, uh, from 2015 to 2017. And as part of my duties as president, I am to give the presidential lecture 
the night before my term as president ends. And so I was um, faced with um, the task of composing this address. And I wanted to, I thought very uh, deeply and carefully about what it, what it was that I thought was important to say, to talk about to this audience of anthropologists. And there were about a thousand people in the audience that night. And I decided that what I needed to do was to talk about, given the darknesses in the world, um, that I needed to uh, talk about what I had learned over the many decades of my life in anthropology and to share with this audience what I thought was significant in terms of what we have come to know and what we need to do. And so I composed a, an address that was titled Four Stories, a Lament, and an Affirmation. So little did I know that there was this artist in the audience, and that was Charlotte, and we did not know each other. The next morning, um, after my talk, I received from a AAA staff member a gorgeous illustration that was created by this artist, Charlotte Corden. And um, that's, that's, the, that's the birth of the story that ultimately became the graphic book, Light and Dark Times. But before I turn this over to Charlotte so she can share with us her uh, perspective on, on our, our meeting together, our first meeting, and then what happened after that, I wanted to just mention bri briefly how this book actually fits into the discipline of anthropology. So as you noted, we developed this book as a graphic book of art and anthropology. And it doesn't just come out of that using, employing that genre and who we imagined our audience to be and what we wanted to do, what the goal was in creating this work was, was not just because we felt like it, but because it's situated in, in the world, in the world of anthropology and in the conversations that anthropologists have been having for decades about writing culture about how to decolonize the discipline, uh, about the politics of representation, and about how to demonstrate the relevance of our discipline to real world concerns, and also how to move out of the ivory tower and stop talking just to ourselves and really making the effort to reach larger audiences so that anthropology and anthropological knowledge and insights can be part of the conversation, the public conversation, not just a conversation that anthropologists are having with one another, which are important, by the way. It's important to have those conversations with one another, but it is also important, I think, that we share this knowledge and insight and information with the world. And so that's where this book, this graphic novel, is situated in, in the larger discipline. But back to the personal story, Charlotte is in the audience and she had a particular reaction, obviously, because she created this gorgeous visual representation of my words. Yeah, so I'll jump in right here and uh, take, take off from where Elise left off. I was, um, uh, I was presenting at this conference. I'd been asked to present about art and anthropology. 
I had a background in anthropology, a master's in anthropology, and I was looking um, at how drawing can really help us to understand very complex truths. And I was applying this to anthropological research that I was doing at the time. And um, so I was in the audience and I was there and I made a practice of um, sketchnoting or live illustrating lots of different talks. So I had intended to illustrate on on my iPad Elisa's talk as she spoke, Um, but she started to speak and I was astounded. And I don't know what in me had this reaction exactly, but I decided very... I decided something that was very unusual for me. I decided not to draw it and instead to take as many notes as possible in that moment of the things that she was saying in order to go back um, to my hotel afterwards and work it into an illustration that made more sense because I knew that she was talking about such complex ideas. You know, she speaks about um, the obfuscation of trivia. She talked about the importance of lament. She talked about things that... I just thought it was so human and so relevant to everybody. Um, I was really inspired by the things that she said, and I wanted to see them. I wanted to understand how they fit together on the page visually. Um, so I created this illustration of her speech um, and yeah, sent it out to, to some people that uh, were organizing the event who, who sent it to Elise by email. And um, I realized we don't have a lot of time in this. <laughs> podcast so we want to keep these answers a bit short so just skip forward um essentially a month later Ellie um got in touch she she got in touch straight away and said wow this is amazing this is great um but then a month later she got in touch again and and said do you want to do a book and I said of course yes <laughs> what a great opportunity to really delve deep visually into these ideas that she's spoken about and um yeah, that's the beginning of it all. So, so just to clarify, at the um, at, right after the presentation, Charlotte, you went you went off to your hotel and and drew everything that night and sent it to. No, so oh. I didn't draw the book in one night. That would be yeah. <laughs> what I drew, what I drew is this uh, picture that summed up her speech. So I I took all my notes and I decided, okay, well these were the these were the main points that I wanted to illustrate, and then I began illustrating them on the page. And actually, an example of the illustration is um, in the preface of the book. Um, is <laughs> holding it up to camera right now. Um, slightly different colour scheme, um, but it, it has the same emphasis on light and dark and, and obfuscation of trivia, like I mentioned, and this um, importance of envisioning an alternative world. Um, and all of all of the major ideas are on it. Um, so, yeah. and, and, and again, we can move on to other topics, but before we do, I mean, just to clarify, um, also, um, when I contacted Charlotte that, uh, you know, after um, about a month or so, and asked her if she would be interested in working with me on a graphic book based on this address, this presidential address. And she said, yes, we started to work together via Skype. And we, I, we're not going to go into the details of what we did here, but we worked on this. We worked on that. We worked on the other thing. And it was very difficult um, to do it. So, you know, Charlotte is in the UK and I am in the US. I'm in New York. And, um, and so after a couple of months, Charlotte said, hmm, how about I come to New York? And Charlotte moved in 
to my house um, on and off for, for several months uh, at a time. Um, and we worked every day in my the basement of my home to create Light and Dark Times, which was a magical, magical time. It's, I think, a, a unusual. It was, the whole thing was very serendipitous, you know, uh, the way we, it came together. And it was as if the stars lined up so beautifully and we produced this, what I think is a remarkable book that is gorgeous. Charlotte is such an amazing, incredible artist. Charlotte, actually, I will, I'll just add that, you know, we have um, a little comic strip that we're uh, producing right now for the Anthropology News. It's going to come out in um, the summer issue of Anthropology News. And it is um, a, a little short comic strip about what we just described to you. And um, I got so excited when, um, so we, again, we worked on it together and, and then Charlotte rendered the illustrations, of course. Uh, and then um, she sent, just sent me yesterday the um, final colored comic strip, all colored in and drawn in and everything beautiful. And I laughed because it's funny moments and it's, we talk about serious things, even though it's a short comic strip, very serious things. And, um, and then there's this capturing of our relationship and our dynamic, which is just so, so again, uh, an, an extraordinary collaboration. And I, I, I say again, and I said to you in an email, I love you. I love how you draw. You're so amazing. You know, Charlotte also does oil paint. And, I mean, she's just an incredible artist. Okay. Um, this is such a fantastic way of starting the podcast, really drawing on this serendipitous moment between the two of you, and um, which really kind of stems in line with the theme of the book, um, you know, light and dark times, the human search for meaning. And I just love the idea that both of you really did take this forward and, and have accomplished so much and are now sharing it with others. So let's move into the contents of the, of the book itself. Um, in part one, the first page, um, part one is titled Reflections, but from the first page, the reader follows a cartoon image of Elise performing in front of an audience. So here, as they just mentioned, it's the American Anthropological Association. And here Elise is saying to the audience, quote, today I reflect on this moment of being. I stand without fixity, pressed against the world, looking to lift the cotton wool and peek at some real things. And as this cartoon image of Elise speaks, we see Charlotte climbing up from the audience to the stage to join Elise on this journey that lays ahead, which is the contents of the book itself. And your caricature images describe this journey as um, seeking to make sense of the darkness and make visual those observations that illuminate. Can you tell our listeners a bit more about what it makes to sen make sense? Sorry, can you tell us a bit more about what it makes what what it means to make sense of darkness, and how does anthropology provide an avenue to do so? Okay, so um, I think what's very important is that the first thing we need to do is recognize that the darknesses are there. Some people have asked me, "How do we know there's darkness?" What is the darkness? So what is it? Well, I ask, what are the clues to it, 
the darknesses being there. And there are all the deaths, the destructions, the dehumanizations and displacements, all the stupid deaths, to use Paul Farmer's um, uh, phrase, which is about all of the needless deaths and destruction that's out there. And why is it there? It's there because rapacious interests are prioritized over human interests too much in this world that we live in. And the darknesses of our contemporary world are not new. I mean, they've been there for a very long time. And of course, most recently with the pandemic, all the cracks have been you know, a broken wide open and it's revealed more so perhaps than, than before how much of these the darknesses are, are really there. So I think that the first thing is that we have to recognize the darknesses. And I think that anthropology is one avenue, but not the only avenue for coming to recognize the darknesses. So there's also the, 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 um, the, uh, the, the works of philosophers, the works of activists, the words of the poets, as well as the words and works of anthropologists um, and other social scientists that offer us insight, offer us understanding, offer us a way of comprehending the world as it exists and helping us, you know, this, this obfuscation we've been talking about and the pushing the cotton wool of obfuscation out of the way, it's that that so much of these darknesses are covered up and often purposefully. So they're masked on purpose. And I think those of us in these disciplines, uh, in the arts and in the humanities, um, help uncover that which is hidden in plain sight often. And so, um, so I think that part of it is that, um, what for, at least for me, because I'm an anthropologist, I've been an anthropologist for decades. So anthropology is one avenue because what it does is it helps us, um, appreciate difference. Now, anthropology, anthropologists say we appreciate difference, cultural difference. We may not always arrive or be successful in the goal of appreciating difference rather than demonizing difference. But at least it is a stated goal or a principle of the discipline. And I think the other aspect of that, and it's related, is that anthropology, cultural anthropology, um, is very cross-cultural. It's comparative. It, 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 it asks us to move outward from the universe that we know and we live and that have become normalized to us and appear natural and asks us to look at other ways of being in the world and truly understanding them and therefore making, as we like to say in the discipline, uh, the strange, quote unquote, familiar and the familiar strange. And all those are elements of anthropology that I think our avenues, our principles, and their approaches that help enable us to move towards recognizing the darkness and then uncovering the sources and roots of the darknesses. Um, there is one other aspect, um, which is 
that I wanted to say. Um, I'll pause here because I can't remember. And then, of course, there's ethnography in anthropology, which means we get up close and personal. We immerse ourselves in the lives of others at a slow pace. And that is also an avenue by means we can uh, come to deeper understanding of humanity. And Charlotte, thank, would you like to add anything to that through your experience as an artist and an anthropologist? Yeah, definitely. Um, I think we we discussed a lot when we were create, uh, creating this book about the line that you just read out that my character reads um, that says, uh, I, well, Elise says, I as an anthropologist, and I say, uh, and I as an artist, and Elise says, seek to make sense of the darkness, and I say, and make visual those observations that illuminate. And we, we spent some time trying to figure out what it was that I was doing here as an artist and anthropologist in this book as a character. And and this is exactly what it was. It was, I wanted to to use drawing and to use illustration as a way, as a vehicle to have a different kind of understanding of the things that Elise was talking about that anthropology can do. Um, and that is, I think, what we've succeeded in this book. And 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 it's it's really important to me that well when I came to anthropology I got so excited about it because it was a discipline that enabled me to be so many things and enabled me to be exactly who I was I wanted to draw all the time and I could study people and draw all the time I wanted to think about philosophy it enables you to go into every part of every aspect of what it is to be human and as an artist now I'm a full-time artist now and um it's exactly I, this search for, for what it is to be human. What does it mean to be human? I think it's so central for an artist search and an anthropologist search. So this coming together of both me and Elise creating this book and um, going deep into these meanings. And, and for me, that, that this personal journey of discovering what radical evil looks like, for example, a topic that's called, taught in the book, or what does it mean to envision an alternative world? How do we illustrate that? What does this journey of knowledge actually look like visually? All of those big questions were so wonderful to get a grip on. And and at the same time, I I really wanted to create something that helped other people to discover new meanings in Elisa's words. Um, So I think what anthropology does is it, it opens up the door to so many expressions of what it is to be human that are rooted in truth and 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 real rigorous research so you can rely on the messages that are being conveyed and that is wonderful yeah and um yeah there there's also another aspect um which is that you know i'm i'm the author charlotte's the artist the illustrator and we have our own representations of what we're trying to convey. I'm conveying with words. Charlotte is conveying with images. The reader, viewer, also has opportunity to make meaning as they read these words, as they examine the images, and the images are very detailed. And they can take pause, and they can, and they can think about the kinds of issues we're raising, questions we're uh, asking and um, the, the their own interpretation of what we're trying to 
to communicate and perhaps be inspired also to dig more deeply so that when we introduce different characters, some readers, viewers may be familiar with them and their works or may not be. And we're hoping, or at least I hope, that it might prompt some readers slash viewers to uh, find out more about who this poet is. Who is this philosopher? Um, what did they have to say about these critical issues? Yeah, this this merging of the of, of writing and images definitely takes the reader on a much deeper uh, route and 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 really opens up all kinds of insp- inspirational channels, which is much more difficult to do in just a kind of um, textual ethnographic style as anthropologists are more traditionally expected to follow. Mm-hmm. Moving from the theme of reflections, in chapter two, um, you move to the theme of introspection. Can you tell us a bit about that? What does it mean to be introspective as you write about in the book, Light in Dark Times? So I'm going to go back here to the root of the um, talk, the address. And I was recall, I was talking to an audience of anthropologists. Um, but it's also relevant, I believe, to anybody who may pick up this book, uh, regardless of what their specialty is or where they are in the world um, and in their lives. So, you know, we talked earlier uh about peeking at some, lifting the cotton wool and peeking at some real things. And then we talked about the darknesses out there. So there is that, that which is out there, to look at that, to look at the darknesses. But then on being introspective is a call to reflect um, inwardly on oneself and to ask perhaps, again, the book, we're not prescriptive. We don't say, and this is what you need to do if you want to be introspective. We're not telling the reader, viewer what to do on that. But it's suggestive that one might look within themselves. We might look within ourselves and ask ourselves, um, you know, what, what am I, how am I contribu- contributing to the darknesses? How, what am I assuming out there? What am I doing to counter them? Because I could be doing things and I'm, I might be aware of this. It's a grappling with one's consciousness. Am I too self-congratulatory and aggrandizing? So there are some folks who might say, well, I am, you know, you know, the ego gets in the way. And, you know, even if there are, you know, a critical anthropologist or, you know, a, a, a deeply um, um, engaged activist, they can also be very self-aggrandizing about their importance, you know. So am I genuinely humble? Am I genuinely respectful? And all these kinds of questions that one can ask themselves, again, it's not to be judgmental about other people but about really being honest with oneself about what your assumptions are and also, and, you know, and, and what your privileges are, if you will. Um, and, um, and what is it again, what Charlotte said, how do I want to be human? What does it mean to be human? But how do I want to be human? How do I want to fit into this world? That's not my own little universe. 
and not just about my own career and not just about my own, again, universe, but about if I understanding that there are these things, these darknesses in the world, what, what, where do I fit into that? And again, not as a judgmental thing, not to be self derogatory and not to be self aggrandizing about it, but be introspective about it. I also think it's a call for the discipline of anthropology to be introspective. In what ways have we, and I think we do grapple with this as a discipline, contributed to the darknesses? You know, anthropology, we know, has been a handmaiden of colonialism, as they as is commonly said. But in what ways does the discipline continue to reproduce those inequities, those kinds of inequities? And in what ways does it does it um, does it not? In what ways does it contribute positively to helping solve human problems? And I think it does do a lot of good in that in that way. So that's what I feel is 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 the meaning of being introspective. Charlotte, do you have anything to add to that? Well, this is really Elisa's area of expertise. Um, but I'll just read a small, a short section so that. You can get the gist. Um, This is a call to acknowledge in the first instance that no one is outside the absurdity of individual aspiration as long as we are living in this world. With introspection, those wholly settled on aspirational goals will come to see the decadence. Those who imagine they are outside the absurdity will own up to the advantages they enjoy from it. I think that's really key like actually like introspection you know we all live in this world as we said and those who are when we when we're just focused on our own career goals our own aspirations it is decadence we ignore we ignore the suffering of others and those who imagine that they are outside of this absurdity that they are always helping people that they don't have their you know own um uh, things that they want to achieve, and that's what's really driving them. You know, they're so amazing because they're always out for the other person. I mean, like you actually have to own up that we all enjoy privilege in this world in some form or another, or most a, a great many of us do, and we have to to live with those advantages and work out how we're gonna, how many of them we're gonna go for in the future. So. Thank you. That's really great. Moving from um, reflection and introspection, the third part looks at thinking in dark times. And you illustrate, the both of you illustrate and write about the significance and political relevance of thinking, particularly through Hannah Arendt's work. What does thinking in dark times mean and how can we move closer to it? Yeah, so Hannah Arendt um, had a lot to say about thinking. <laughs> Um, and what we pick, one of the strands um, that we picked up on and, and portray in this book is about um, the absence of thinking that shows it to show its lack. So she, so one of the examples that comes from Arendt is about Adolf Eichmann, um, and you know his famous line, "Oh, I was just following orders," you know, in his uh, incredible role in, in the Holocaust. And um, what, she, um, what she says is that what that reveals about Eichmann is his thought 
listness because the absence of thinking. To be able to say that shows thoughtlessness and absence of thinking. And then from there, we go on to talking about uh, and quoting Roger Berkowitz, uh, who is a Hannah Arendt scholar and runs the Bard Center, um, Hannah Arendt Center uh, at Bard um, College. He's, we have him speaking and saying, reason reasons, it does not think. Um, and that means that reason is a form of justification. It's, it, it, it's, it's um, reason justifies things that are unreasonable, torture, for example. Uh, and all, of, all, all we have to do is look, look around, um, around and we see the ways in which reason reasons, but it is not about thinking and thoughtfulness. So like, for example, I mean, I'm here in the U.S., in the U.S., look at all the warmongering in the United States that is justified by reason, reasonable arguments. I mean, arguments that may sound reasonable on the surface, but they are thoughtless. They are not the result of thinking through uh, what is really going on here. Another example is when I think about healthcare in the United States. Healthcare in the United States. So is something that's in the marketplace. It's bought and sold in the marketplace. And there is reasons given why that should be. Oh, people will not appreciate the health care that they get unless they pay for it. People don't appreciate things unless they have to pay for it. Then they'll appreciate it. That's, that's hogwash. That's reason reasons. It's a justification for, some, for something pernicious. It's not, it's not thoughtful because if it were thoughtful, if there was thinking involved, then people who are sick would get the care that they need. It's really quite simple. And so um, um, I think so I think that's the kind of thing that we were trying to convey in this section on thinking in dark times. Um, I'll pause here and let Charlotte have a chance to talk more. This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Do you have a point of sale system you can trust or is it <clears throat> a real POS? You need Shopify for retail. From accepting payments to managing inventory, Shopify POS has everything you need to sell in person. Go to shopify.com system, all lowercase, to take your retail business to the next level today. That's shopify.com system. Well, I'll just talk about one image that I enjoyed drawing about thinking a lot, and that was on page 41. Um, a person thinks by means of a soundless, solitary, internal dialogue, whereby he examines what he or she says and what he or she does. Something akin to a conscience, a silent intercourse that some people never initiate. I, I enjoyed drawing a series of boxes here of a person trying to think. Um and it is hard. It is it is hard to think. It's hard to get outside of one's own um, prejudices. It's hard to be honest, be a person who is honest, Com coming from the previous chapter of somebody who's, who's introspective, who's really self-reflective, self who's open to changing their mind and to changing their opinions according to deeper thinking. And I, I think it's in today's world that's it's a really, really important point. 
and that we are open to receiving and change at receiving new facts and new information and also then to change our minds about the position that we were arguing for um, and I think, Charlotte, that's so wonderful. And, and it really is because when you ask the question, how can we move closer to it? I think this is why knowledge is so important. Because, you know, again, in the U.S., there's such a demonization of education. <laughs> you know, the, um, the accusations by the right wing, for example, the political right wing, that, oh, you know, university educations are really not that useful because it's not teaching people how to, you know, uh, you know, uh, uh, have skills in the world, which is not true. Um, it, it, uh, it is, uh, you know, prejudices people. No, it doesn't. What it does is it opens minds because it exposes young people to knowledge and information exposure. It, it's not a, you know, university educations are not about, um, simply throwing certain information at people, but is helping young people learn how to access knowledge and information that is reliable <laughs> and that uh, and facilitate the way for them to um, to be able to think, <laughs> you know, to be able to think um, and to make decisions that, again, um, might prioritize or might might not just go along with the status quo. So I think that when you ask, how can we move closer to thinking in dark times, we need to appreciate the value of knowledge and the value of the institutions that are in place and that need to be supported in, in which knowledge is um, shared made available and, and and in dialogue with others. Yeah, and just so um, our readers who might not have the book in front of them yet, um, to go back to what Charlotte was saying, was, was telling us about the, the images that she draws on page 41. Um, so these box, there's 12 box images and, and it's um, this caricature thinking in many different forms and thinking isn't always pleasant. You know, the, in some of the um, boxes, the character is kind of looks very inspired and creative and some um, they're really troubled and unable to kind of even maybe be mobile and they're very fixated in those thoughts. And some, you know, the character is more contemplative and some they're very relaxed and, and look kind of content with their thoughts. So I think this is something that, as you were talking, Charlotte, especially, but also Elise, this idea that through thinking we become multiple and we're not in any way fixated to one type of person and, and one trait, which is maybe something that um, goes very much against political systems, but of course also a very strict education system, re regime, but also just you know society and culture um, from all angles based on this idea of consumption. So the more we consume, the more we can come to a, a single true self, which very much goes against what you're describing thinking is, especially through obviously Hannah Arendt's work. Um, 
this idea of thinking also, um, and, and when thinking becomes a commodity, um, especially through educational institutions, and I think this is anybody who's an academic kind of has to face as well, because the pressure of publications and the pressure of having to produce um, constant work, which might not be based on thought or intellectual thinking, or then we get so carried away in our intellectual thinking that it doesn't really have any 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 merit for anybody, only brings us to a darker place. So this theme of truth lies and the danger of the trivial is something that both of you draw on in part four of the book. And can you tell our listeners in your own words, obviously not mine, not my interpretations, but through your own words, um, what does anthropology offer as a way of understanding the dangers around the political facts of lying and truth? in dark times. So I'm going to pick up on something you just said, which was about producing more, more knowledge, not necessarily better knowledge or, you know, because there are these pressures. I mean, again, going back to what we were discussing earlier about, you know, we have to be reflective of our discipline, but also of our institutions, you know, so if those of us who are academics, um, you know, know all too well, as you just said, that there there are these pressures to you know um uh, to produce to produce to produce and so it it can lead people to producing trivia to producing things that are not really all that important you know what's really significant and again in this time of the pandemic i think that's become really clear too because for example i'll give you an example in my in my university and you know I'm the department chair um, and we have moved all of our classes to online teaching and our students are really struggling as are our fa- faculty without that in-person, you know, classroom experience. And so it's been very difficult in the context of life struggles amid a pandemic and everything that that, that has involved. And so I've had to field questions and concerns by the faculty who have come to me as the department chair to say, um, you know, we're struggling here. And, and I say, let's look at, and I have said, let's look at this as an opportunity to think about what is it that you really want students to get out of your course? Okay. Cut through all the (laughs) unnecessary stuff that might be trivial um, that really might be trivial and really not all that important. And what is it that is important? And what is it that is significant? Because if you do that, then the students, regardless of the strains and struggles that they're going through and the faculty member, the instructor is going through, if you then you will engage in something that is so meaningful that they're that everybody is going to want to participate in that. And I think we should be doing that all of the time. But sometimes we get caught up in, oh, um, you know, the curriculum says that I'm supposed to, they're supposed to know X, Y, and Z. And I say, let's step back and say, really, why? Well, maybe X is an important thing to know. But is Y? Is Z? I mean, really, let's let's be thoughtful about it. And... Um, Anyway, so so I think that's that's an aspect of the 
the danger of the trivial that comes out of the academy. And we do have a, a little remark here. It's called under notes about about that, you know. And again, I think going back to being self-reflective or introspective, I think it behooves the individual anthropologist to look at their own work and say, you know, what is really important here and real and what isn't. And then in terms of truth and lies, I think critical anthropology is so important and significant to helping us pull out and separate out the lies. And when I think about amaz- the amazing works produced by anthropologists, I mean, just off the top of my head, just some that come to my mind of recent works, even, only of U.S. anthropologists, for example, you know, who I'm most familiar with. I mean, Catherine Besteman's work, uh, Lawrence Ralph, Augustine Fuentes, um, 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 Jonathan Marks, Carrie Brando, Donna Davis, all of these folks in anthropology are producing critical anthropological works that really, it doesn't mean they have the answers to everything, but they ask the questions that take, that dig into what the assumptions are underlying things and, and, and looking to um, rigorously produced data and analysis to come to, again, a deeper understanding and illumination, if you will. And then the other thing we talk about in that section of the book is the conflation of truth with opinion, which I think we, I would guess we have all had experiences with, and we see it pervasive every day when you read the newspaper. And even the way some reporters report the so called news where they say things like, oh, well, we're going to get this person's opinion and then we're going to get this other person's opinion because they're in contrast. And so, you know, reproducing this kind of binary and also uh, uh, reproducing this notion that every opinion has equal weight when it doesn't. So, for example, you know, my own work has been on urban poverty in the U.S. That's been, you know, a big part of my work. And, um, and some people, you know, I've been in conversations with people in the world where they say, oh, I know, I know why there, there's poverty. There's poverty because, you know, poor people are lazy. You know, I mean, that's like, um, it's like a shocking thing to, for me to even say because, because, oh, it's so ridiculous. But people have that opinion and that opinion is reproduced in policy, in social policy and practice. And I, I have a different perspective about the roots and causes of poverty and why, why there is poverty. And that's based on decades and decades of research, writing, studying, analysis, and coming to understand it. So frankly, one person's opinion is not equal to another person's um, necessarily. And I think there is such a dangerous it's such a danger right now, and especially since we have social media, it's such a we're flooded with everybody's opinion, and it's so hard to know how to curate, um, curate that, and sift through it to get at what's significant and what's lying. What is? What are the lies? And what isn't? 
Thank you so much, Elise. Charlotte, do you have anything to add to that? Um, uh, yeah, so I think my experience of anthropology and and political truth and lie is not, you know, it's not what I studied in anthropology. I studied drawing, material, culture, and things like that. So I was, this was the first time I was ever introduced to it at Elisa's speech and then creating this book. And something that I struggled with um, in this book was, especially to draw, was this concept of radical deception that Elise talks about on, on page 51. It's actually Peg Birmingham, um, the character who's on this page talking, and, and Hannah Arendt together. And they say the second danger that lurks is radical deception, which goes beyond the deliberate lie to add a new variation to the old art of lying, that of lying the truth, the deliberate conversion of a lie into a reality. And in the next pages, we then explore how people have done this, um, how uh, how the Nazis destroyed Germany. Um, and, and the other example was... Uh, the George W. Bush's administration claimed that Al-Qaeda was operating out of Iraq, which was at the outset a lie and then used to justify the invasion of Iraq and then because of the war became true. And the, and it was shocking to me. It was, it was really shocking and very hard to, to swallow that actually political systems lie this way and, and then because of the lie, they turn the actual lie into a reality. And I, and I, it took a long time to to draw this because it's very dark and very twisted and, and not at all something I'd ever thought about or grappled with. But also, I also very much wanted to draw it accurately. And how do you draw radical deception in, in this context like this? And so I ended up drawing this, essentially a, a very big blackness on the page that the characters are walking into because that's the only way that I could figure out something that represented something that was this terrible and awful, but also without, you know, can, it can happen anywhere at any time. We can be so blind to what's really going on. And, of course, there are conspiracy theories. Of course, there are things that aren't true. Or aren't, you know, it's so difficult to work through it all, but I am grateful to anthropology as a subject that where people do devote their lives to trying to uncover what is true and what is really going on in the long term. And um, uh, I think it's a wonderful way to spend a life is to try and uncover these truths. That's so fascinating, Charlotte, to hear you talk about um, the emotional, um, emotional kind of aspects of drawing these, these, bigger, very dark themes that, as you just said, obviously um, anthropologists write about um, because I do think that that emotional element isn't very often brought to brought to the page, especially for an in scholarly work, um, which is why this is such a fantastic example of how art and, and scholarly thinking can merge and draw on um, both the emotions of the creators as a way of communicating that to the reader. So let's move. Sorry, Elise, did you have something to say? Yes, I just wanted to add to that, you know, uh, the anthropologist Gina Ulissi, um, she has urged us, anthropologists, um, to, to not be split apart 
and she urges us to synthesize the poet in us and the scholar, the anthropologist in us, and the responsible global citizen. And that's the kind of anthropology I think is important uh, as we move forward. Absolutely. That was, that was great. Um, if, we're, if we want to look at part five in your book, looking at um, what's titled the On Envisioning an Alternative wor- World, here you go into more detail um, on anthropology's role in, in very much um, kind of removing the removing removing the um, the darkness and removing the cotton wool to peek at some of the real things, as was mentioned earlier in the discussion. So, what is anthropology's role in envisioning an alternative world that you write about and draw in part five of your book? Okay, so I was trying to thumb through the book to see exactly where you're referring, but I'll just say, um, I'll I'll say two two things. Uh, One is, um, I think in order to envision an alternative world, the first thing we need to do is know the world. And anthropology is a huge participant in, in contributing to knowing the world. Imagine the enormous body of literature worldwide produced by anthropologists anywhere and everywhere about people anywhere and everywhere. It's huge. And that's a one way to help us know the world. So how can you envision or how can you work towards uh, an alternative world if you don't know the world? So that's a first step. It's a necessary but insufficient condition for envisioning an alternative world. But the other piece about this, in in my view, is um, that in envisioning, in that section on envisioning an alternative world, it's it's a call to the reader to step back, take a pause, stop, and ask yourself, what kind of world do I want to live in? What would it look like? What kind of a world do I want for my kids and all the kids and all the grandkids. I'm a grandmother now. I mean, I have my my kids who are my students and my kids who are my children that I gave birth to, and now they have kids. And so, you know, what is what kind of world do I want them to live in? What would it look like? Well, I think, again, in this rush, rush world, we don't have time much to pause, take such pauses. So I think part of what we're urging here is asking people to stop, pause, and think about it. And what would it look like? And then how do you go about participating in creating that alternative world? And again, without telling the reader, okay, this is, this is what the alternative world should look like. And, um, uh, and this is how you go about doing it. But I think individuals can, can, um, can think about that for themselves and take action, which we also talk about a little bit later. Um, and also I just add this. When you ask what is anthropology's role, I want to bring up Paul Farmer for a second, who is a character in the book, but only very briefly. And it's later on in the book where we bring him in. Um, in this section, I think it's to posterity. Um, Paul Farmer is an anthropologist and also a physician. 
And he and Jim Kim, who is also an anthropologist and also a physician, and Ophelia Dahl, who is not an anthropologist, um, the three of them came together and looked around the world. And they saw that there's a big problem here, that the sickest and poorest people in the world were not getting access to health care. And so they created this organization called Partners in Health. In my view, and they created is created it, created that organization as anthropologist physicians. And they um, they wouldn't have created the the organization, in my opinion, the way it has the way it looks and the way it, it has unfolded in terms of delivering quality health care to the poorest places in the world if they had not been anthropologists. Because it was to me the anthropology that gave them perspective to know how to, when they were in the place, in those places, to know where to go to find out what it is that people, that was going on, what was going on around there that, that, that other people didn't know about, that they didn't know about. In order for them, they knew, they came to learn the world in order to know what to do about it. And once they knew what was going on, then they figured out what to do about it. And since they had access to the resources that the folks did not have access to in those places, they figured out a way to transfer resources where there were too many to where there are too few. And now that organization, Partners in Health, which is partners in health, they aren't simply coming from the top down, is enormously successful in delivering this health care. uh, in a in a in a sustainable way that uh, is a model for the world. So that to me is a great illustration of what anthropology's part- role is in contributing to envisioning and then creating an alternative world. Thank you so much, um, Charlotte. Do you have anything to add to that? Um, just a small thing really from the artist perspective. Um, we, we've done many talks and podcasts and things over the last, um, well, seven or eight months now. And, um, one of the things I've done is a workshop, uh, with students and we drew, um, each of us drew what we imagined an alternative world looked like. And I, I really think that Actually, the act of drawing as well as the act of thinking and writing can be um, very illuminative of what we are really imagining. And it helps us to envision more clearly, right? Okay, well, the world's going to look like this, but what about this person? What about that person? Like, how are they going to interact with this thing that I'm creating here? And how does, and, and what drawing does it, is, is it, you begin to create the context around what you're drawing. If you're thinking about, okay, what goes in this space, space on the page or what goes in that space of the page? And and it can be an amazing way to envision an alternative world together, to draw together what it might look like. So I really encourage readers, um, listeners like if and readers, if they want to, um, give it a go. Draw your alternative worlds and see what you might come up with. That's such a fantastic exercise. I mean, that's something that children are encouraged to do from the earliest years of learning how to draw in art classes. And then we imagine that as adults, um, you know, those those 
desires and and dreams and all kinds of creative worlds are repressed um and i think this is such a fantastic way of of um trying to encourage hope in people something that maybe is increasingly difficult to to try to grapple with especially amidst the pandemic um and of course of course arts has so many benefits but i think charlotte that's a really really great exercise and thank you for for bringing that up now because i think it's something that um many of our listeners will probably consider doing just on the side for fun but also you know it's a, it is a way of making something happen yeah yeah and charlotte always says everybody can draw don't worry about well, you can say it, Charlotte. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> well, yeah, so, so what I always start doing is saying, you know, really everyone can draw. Most people, when you say, oh, I'm an artist, I'm an illustrator, immediately they say back to you, oh, I can't draw. And I, I think it's just not true. It's just we're not used to it. Or we're not practicing it. We don't feel confident in it. We don't know quite what we're doing. And, you know, no artist really does. <laughs> you never get there completely. And... um. Everyone can draw. Everyone can draw a stick man. Everyone can draw an idea. And the important thing to remember when you're drawing is it's not about the finished article. The most valuable part of drawing is what is how it helps you to see something anew, how it helps you to discover something about the world that you didn't see before, discover something about yourself or your relations or something like that. Like the, the most valuable part of it is not the finished product. It's not about making something beautiful, although that's nice too. It's about discovery and meaning. And, um, yeah, so I really encourage you, if you think you can't draw, just give it a go. It doesn't matter if it goes in the bin afterwards. It doesn't matter if you put it on your wall or whoever sees it. It just The whole point of it is the process of it and how that can help you to find something out that you didn't know before. Charlotte um, came to one of my classes in 2018, a class on writing anthropology. And uh, I had had the students doing these little mini ethnographies on a topic of their choice. And then they were you know, gathering data and then they were going to be writing it up in whatever format they wanted to. Anyway, Charlotte comes to class and she's doing drawing exercises <clears throat> with the students. It was so enjoyable and pleasurable. And there's one that was such a standout. And again, she's prefaced the exercises by saying, do not worry about how it's going to look. Just and she made them do these drawings very quickly, literally in 30 seconds. So you don't have time to get self-conscious. So one of the students had done a, was doing a project on visible disability. He himself had a very visible disability, and he wanted to talk to other people about the impact of their visible disabilities um, and um, on their lives and their experiences and so forth. And this when Charlotte gave his students the exercise, he wrote, he drew little marks uh, in semicircles in a row and a semicircle, sort of a horseshoe, series of horseshoes, and then a dot next to it. And it was an image of a person on crutches and it was their gait. It was so powerful an image and for me, it was like the marks that remain uh, as a result of having a visible disability. So, I mean, there's this literal, the gate, you know, the way 
And that's different than it would be if you drew somebody's having who have two working legs. Um, But it was also so it was a literal, but it was also this metaphoric thing about the that which remains, the marks that remain um, when you are passing by with a visible and you have a visible disability. It was very powerful. It was thirty seconds. Well, well, that is very powerful. Yeah, and I think that was such a brilliant way of summing up my question on and envisioning an alternative word world. Um, in chapter six, you move to the theme of the lament, um, a lament for human suffering and for a sense of impotence in the space of it. Here you draw on an excerpt from one um, from playwright Bernard Pratt's poems to pros- posterity. What does this poem teach us? Can you tell our audience a bit more about this poem to posterity and what does it mean to what does it what's its relevance to the theme of the lament? Okay, so I'm going to respond to that by going back to my original talk. When I gave the original address, I included. Uh, excerpts from Bertolt Brecht's um, poem To Posterity, written on the eve of World War II. And what I did in as I presented, when I presented all the different sections, um, you know, the four stories in the book are the things that we've been talking about today, by the way. You know, to be introspective, to be, uh, you know, to think in dark times, et cetera, et cetera. Those were the four stories. Um, and then, uh, so with each section of my address, I had the lighting in the room change to a different aura. So uh, when we talked, when I was talking about the darknesses, the light in the room got dark. And then it came to reading the excerpt of Bertolt Brecht's poem, To Posterity. And I had the room darken and be sort of in a purplish shade. And I read to this audience... These ex- this excerpt that begins as follows. Truly, I live in dark times. He who laughs has not yet received the terrible news. And then it goes on. And I, as I read it to this audience in the mood in the room, I was practically in tears myself at that moment. So part of what this poem teaches us to me is about feeling, and we talked about that a minute ago, about emotions. But here it was a way, symbolically and literally, again, to bring in feeling. Sit with the sorrow. Feel the darkness. Not just understand it intellectually, but really have it get to your core if you want to step into empathy and understanding. So I think... I think that that's part of what this poem teaches us, but it teaches us so much more. Because it teaches us, us so much, so many things about what we've discussed in this conversation today. Because the very next lines after uh, what I just read, that is still an excerpt, nothing that I do entitles me to eat my fill. By chance I was spared. And that too talks to the issues that we, we, we've been covering in this discussion, that we have to understand our social positionality, if you will, and the privileges that we enjoy. It doesn't mean that we should not eat if we're hungry, because we still need to eat you know, when we're hungry. 
even if another doesn't have food in their mouths. But that doesn't mean that we then forget about those who don't have food in their mouths. So it's it's all of those things. I think he has used poetry to to reflect on the sorrows, the contradictions, the dilemmas, um, and the struggles that people must engage in dark times. Very moving, very important, and um, makes me think about also this idea of, you know, recognizing the privileges, but then also enjoying them, so not doing it carelessly, not doing it passively. Um, Charlotte, do you have anything to add on this theme of the lament? Well, there was just one one line that I really struck me at the time when Elise read it, and I'll read it out. Actually, I think I'll read out the, the verse. So, for we knew only too well, even the hatred of squalor makes the brow grow stern. Even anger against injustice makes the voice grow harsh. Alas, we who wished to lay the foundations of kindness could not ourselves be kind. I just love that this is in the book, that that this like very raw human reflection on what it is to look on suffering and to suffer, but also just the state at which we sometimes find ourselves in as humans. Like, I want to make the world kind. I want to envision this amazing place. I want to, the world to be all this, in this beautiful way and I'm going to draw it and it's going to be, you know, it could happen in the future. And then we get to the, to ourselves, we, you know, we go back home and we realise that, well, how else am I going to fix the world when I, when I can't even be nice to the people around me, you know, when, when my face is angry and everything and, and I can't be soft anymore because I'm so angry or, you know, all of those things that we struggle with internally as individuals, like, it's important to recognise that. And as Elise said, it's important to, you know, sit with that, let that out, you know, in some creative form, it could be healing. Um, yeah, I think it's important that lament is recognised as, as a mode of moving moving forward through our, our anger and our um, confusion. And we put that part um, at that at this point in the book, you know, as you said, it's chapter six. Um, so it's sort of late into the book because and it was right uh, you know, after envisioning an alternative world and then um, and then also before we get to the present. So we put it there because we need to I, I it's almost like it serves as a reminder, again, bringing it back to the affect and the emotion and the, you know, our, um, that if we're, it's sort of grounding, the lament is grounding in a certain way. And we can't just go off on envisioning an alternative world and doing our part, end of story. No, we have to, again, it keeps us humble. Yeah, absolutely. Step away from the ego. And, and some of the things we were talking about earlier in the interview, you know, doing doing charity, for example, but for who? Being generous and in, in, um, in an honest, through an honest path with feeling. Um, and this draws, this goes closer to the, the next theme in, in chapter seven, to be present, where you turn to consider the relevance of theory through the question, how do we want to be human? And 
Um, this is something that we've already obviously spoken about already in quite a fair amount um, thus far, but can you tell our listeners a bit more about how theory teaches us to consider that question? The question being, how do we want to be human? So in this section, we quote um, anthropologist Carolyn Nordstrom, and she says, the way we explain our todays creates our tomorrows. And if we take that apart, we'll see that we must be engaged with the world, um, not be separate from it or apart from it. Um, that theory, understanding theory as explanation. So here's, here's a, a, a little example about, um, I think that, that gets to Nordstrom's notion of the way we explain our todays creates our tomorrows. And this is an example that comes from my own community where I live in New York. Um, and where there has been an issue <clears throat> over the past several years in the community around um, safety and policing and an interest in quote, quote marks, I'm putting this in quote marks, an interest in safety and reducing violence in the lives of children and youth in our schools. And one way to theorize safety and you know, reducing violence in the lives of children, sort of the dominant theory about such things is that violence is produced by troublemakers, that kids in school are not safe because of the troublemakers. And that's an explanation. And it creates our tomorrows. Why? Because it results in punitive approaches as solution to the problem of safety or lack of safety in the schools. And so in my community, one of the proposed solutions was to put armed police officers in the school to deal with the troublemakers. And what will that result in? That will result in, and this is not just speculation, but based on data that has been gathered by scholars in different disciplines, by the way, not just in anthropology, it results in what we call the school to prison pipeline. And you know that the United States has a disproportionate number of people who are prisoners compared to other places in the world. And we also have a disproportionate number of black and Latino, black and brown kids, who, uh, uh, people who are imprisoned. Okay, so how we theorize safety shapes our tomorrow, creates our tomorrows. But there's another way to understand violence. And that has to do with understanding, let's say, well, you know, structural violence. How are the conditions, the structural conditions in the lives of young people, um, you know, are, are, are such that it generates um, what are then labeled troublemakers, the inequities in the, in the society, the structural inequities, the racism, the um, again, the poverty, all of these are forms of structural violence, which the definition of which is that um, the, the systems and structures that that enable some to thrive and others not to thrive. The structural violence is those conditions that are such that um, um, not all individuals can fulfill their potentials. And so if that is your understanding of violence, then your how you and, and how you theorize, you know, 
safety, you're going to it'll lead to different kinds of policies. It's not going to lead to the punitive approach. It's going to it's going to lead to approaches that address the healing, that address healing structurally, but also on the level um, of um, you know healing the individual who has been traumatized traumatized by the structural inequity. So to me, that's how the relevance of theory, how how uh, how we explain our todays, creates our tomorrows. Thank you so much, Elise. Um, let's move on to the concluding chapter of the book, where you explore the theme of what can be done to affect positive social change and to work towards mutual understanding on a gigantic scale. Can you tell our listeners some of these actions that you describe in the book? Maybe Charlotte, do you mind expanding on that a bit? <laughs> I didn't know you jumped on me like that. I was kind of used <laughs> Um, I guess so, like, um, well, this last chapter is really about, you know, situating the things that we've talked about in the book and, and on this podcast in the real world and trying to find some examples of what people are doing that actually give us hope that there is a way to make good, effective change in the world for those that that really need it, for those that are the, uh, in the margins, for those that aren't seen, for those whom it's very difficult to help. And Elise makes some incredible points in this chapter. Um, first of all, we talk about this man called Brian Stevenson who founded the Equal Justice Initiative. And um, the main message from Stevenson is that he, he urges everyone to get proximate to human suffering, which means getting up close and personal because seeing things only from a distant distance leaves out important perspectives. I'm reading there from page 96. And and this is like really key to anthropology, to anybody who wants to really change the world. Is actually we have to we have to be down there with people who are experiencing experiencing the things that they're experiencing because because without that we do we miss out on important details on important perspectives um about how they're behaving a bit like Elise was talking about earlier and, and we touched again on Paul Farmer again here in the next few pages, you know, Paul Farmer's um, Partners in Health, like the reason why that was so successful was because Paul Farmer himself spent years, years and years of his life in Haiti um, taking me- um, me- medical care to those that the world had written off. They said, you, you, they won't take it. They won't take it for all these reasons. They, they're not going to want to take this stuff. And he just proved everybody wrong because he got up close and personal with them in their lives. And and um, and that's it's, it's a really it's very positive that like, we can all do that in our own way wherever we are in the world we can get up close and personal with people in our own community who need help. And um, and and the other thing that Elise touches on here is um, this idea that actually detachment is a form of action, and this is also one of those things that was really hard to swallow and hard to draw. Um, and a very sad thing to draw as well. Like how do you how do you just draw the consequences of detachment? Um, because because most of us, when we do nothing about the world and its states, kind of think that well, it's not on us to do anything, right? Like it's not it's not on me. It's not it's not going to be like no one's going to blame me if like the world goes you know really 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 pear shades and 
and uh, I'm, I'm just trying to live my life I'm just trying to be a good person and actually so so much of the time what we're doing is we're just we're just ignoring the facts around us or, or we're not being engaged in a way that that actually we're really seeking to truly understand what's going on because it's easier not to but there are consequences to that and there are consequences to being disengaged and we need to face that we need to be mindful of that see that our choices do matter even if they're passive um Elise do you want to I just talk about I'll just say one line and well I'll try to say one line uh we try in this section in that to posterity to actually um to not be prescriptive we don't tell people this is what you need to do and this is how you can do it but it's an invitation to uh, again be as charlotte just said be mindful and understand that you know perhaps you are already doing things that's contributing to um the healing so to speak and you should give yourself a little credit for that if you are and if you're not, think about the ways that works for you, that you can do it. Recognizing, we rec- we all recognize that we're all busy. We're also, to take care of our families, we have to pay the rent. We have to do all the things that we need to do. And nobody is saying, drop everything and go save the world. That's not the message. The message is, we do all have a responsibility to contribute something creative to the world. Not more than one person can, just our bit. And that's a quote from Carolyn Nordstrom again. So I think that's our that's the important message there. Yeah, and the book ends on such a wonderful high after all this darkness and lament and everything that goes with that. You know, it really our greatest contribution lies in our collective ability to lift the cotton wool, to peek at some real things out of which projects of the will may be perfected. That's page 104. And and at the very end, it ends on this. Uh, I'll read the last two pages to you so, so you can have a sense of the ending. We will be at our best when we look, see, and perceive with honesty and in good conscience, avoiding the trivial while working towards the great purpose of mutual understanding on a gigantic scale. And that's what we're headed towards, really. I mean, however you define love, however do you define what what great and wonderful society is, it really is mutual understanding and mutual respect, mutual understanding on a gigantic scale. We had that, you know. What would the world really look like? Could be amazing. That was beautiful. Thank you so much. Um both Elise and Charlotte, I've taken up a lot of your time today. But before we end the conversation, I wanted to ask you about what both of you are working on and thinking about these days. Um, at the beginning of the podcast, Elise, you mentioned you've been working on a cart- another cartoon strip together. Um, but what other projects, what are you doing now, um, especially since Light and Dark Times has been published? I'll, I'll go first. I'll just say very briefly that um, I'm very happy to, to share with you that I'm going on sabbatical this year. So I have fall and spring, fall of 21, spring of 2022 on sabbatical. 
I have a fellowship at the Swedish Collegium for Advanced Studies, and um, I will have a three-month residency there in the spring of 2022. So I'll be near you. I'll come visit. Sort of near you. <laughs> nearer to you than I am here. Exactly. <laughs> um, and and uh, my plan is to try my hand at fiction writing. Um, you know, I've I've really tried to explore different genres and. In, in writing and, um, and uh, including intimate ethnography, uh, my book, My Father's Wars, Migration Memory and the Violence of, of, century, of the Century is, um, is an intimate ethnography. And this new project I have is, um, uh, I won't talk about what the details are, but I've had a novel in my mind for decades. And I want to use this opportunity to mm-hmm. find my hand at it. I did write a short story that was just published in Anthropology Now. It's called... Um, interiors and um in december 2020 and um, actually have a little watercolor there that that i did and they published too so that was following in charlotte's footsteps a little bit and so that's that's my plan um so i want to focus on creative writing that's fantastic really look forward to seeing how that unfolds what about you what about you charlotte um, so for me, I am continuing to be an illustrator and an artist. Um, before this journey, I, I did a number of things. One was innovation consultancy and a different thing. So um, really, this book is at the very beginning of my career as an illustrator. And um, so I'm working on different projects. I've got uh, another book with an anthropologist that will be a little bit similar to this. Not quite the same, especially not the same scale, but um that'll be developed over the next few years and then um I do lots of work for anthropology news um always doing illustrations I'm on the cover of this month which is fun I drew a picture of slime um I I have a wonderful job really where I I have so many different things that I have to draw um but I can never get bored I'm doing it children's book um my second children's book and uh, and i continue to do fine art painting so continuing to do landscape painting still lives and and portraiture and trying to learn the techniques of oil painting so that i can blend what i do with illustration into oil painting that's so fantastic both of you are such inspiring and creative individuals and i feel so honored that you've taken your time aside to join me today um I and I imagine the listeners of this show are really going to be looking forward to hearing more about how all of these projects move forward. Um, But for now, I wanted to thank the both of you, Elise and Charlotte, for joining me today to talk about the fantastic and inspiring book, Light in Dark Times, The Human Search for Meaning. Thank you, Elise and Charlotte. Thank you so very much. It's been a joy and a pleasure. Yes, it's really been wonderful. Thank you so much. And thank you also to our listeners for tuning in to New Books and Anthropology, a podcast channel on the New Books Network. Have a great week, everyone.